Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Very exciting show today. We have with us Michael Lay, who is a filmmaker of A Taste of Sky, and Klaus Meyer, Chef Klaus Meyer, who is the subject of A Taste of Sky documentary. And we'll talk about this a little bit. Uh, I thought would be the uh, protagonist of this film, yet was very much the guide. And that is a theme throughout that we're going to talk about. Uh, Klaus, you were very much uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi through this. And I appreciated the way that Michael took that theme and kind of really ran with that. The guide, the mentor of the hero's journey kind of storytelling was very clear. And there's many guides in this. And I think the relationship between guide, mentor, mentee was at the forefront of this film. And what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of what's happening, what's happened with the uh, Melting Pot Foundation, the work that's happened with Gusto. We're going to talk about the film itself and how it really captured the work of taking, you know, Klaus Meyer from from Noma fame and from the new Scandinavian cuisine movement to a Bolivia and Gusto and what that meant for that community and that whole journey. But I want to start with a taste of sky itself the name of the film and there clearly was michael for you a, a storytelling that you wanted to have because altitude kept popping up and i think a lot of people see the altitude and it wasn't clear you don't quite understand it but very much you were setting the scene because bolivia has you know five different biospheres right so it's very much tied to altitude is very much a part of the culture there a part of the cuisine there the ingredients and so wanted to just have you touch on that a little bit, A Taste of Sky. Why was that the name? Why was it important to you, for you to set the scene when it came to the altitude? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a fantastic observation. Not everyone gets the connection between the title and Bolivia, just because not I think a lot of people know about Bolivia's kind of landscapes. But La Paz is, if not the highest, one of the highest capital cities in the world. Right. with I think at 13,000 or 15,000 feet at its highest point. So when you get there, you really feel that you physically feel the altitude kind of getting at you um, because the air is so thin. But then as Klaus kind of was able to pick up when they were doing research and picking countries for their project, it also gave it a fantastic diversity as a country in terms of its ingredients and what was available. So when we were brainstorming and kicking around titles, um, we knew it had to be food related and that's kind of where the taste portion came from but we also wanted to refer to the physicality of the country and simultaneously the aspirational or more uh metaphorical quality of the restaurant and the project which was um these students could kind of use food to aspire to somewhere as high as the sky so kind of is that double entendre there i like that a lot all right, Klaus, let's start quickly. I want to get to Bolivia as quickly as possible. But we do, we need to do, get the backstory a little bit. You know, you're you're at the peak. Noma, best restaurant in the world, uh, you know, according to 50, 
so many best 50, 50 best restaurants and uh, and a lot of media, a lot of accolades, a lot of attention brought to new Scandinavian food, which I know is immense struggle and challenge for you. And then you say it didn't fill me up anymore and you felt the, the need to leave. And so uh, I was interested in kind of that dynamic. Had you achieved the finite goal of getting it on the map and you needed to now move to your infinite goal of, of what uh, Kenzo speaks about, you know, we can change the world through food. So give us an, a better understanding of kind of the catalyst for moving on from Noma. Yeah, so um, Noma and the whole Nordic cuisine movement uh, was never meant to be turned into some sort of short-term branding opportunity for Scandinavia. Um, for us, who, who, who launched the, the concept and, um, and, and, and the, the collaborations, uh, we saw it as um, a chance to learn and a chance to explore um, our history and our geography, our territory, the terroir, as they say in France, uh, in order to you know, uh, find out if there was some sort of hidden language that could, uh, uh, you know, be meaningful in the global choir of uh, flavors and cuisines. Um, and also it was an attempt to reconnect the uh, people in Scandinavia with, with, with the land uh, where they live. And um, all of that, um, uh, you know, got a, a, an incredible momentum and, and um, as, a culinary, as a culinary expression, it materialized beautifully at Noma and, and uh, a number of other restaurants. Noma eventually was uh, voted best restaurant in the world. But at that point in time, I saw all kinds of um, classical uh, um, commercial structures trying to take the notion as a, as a, as a hostage to benefit the short-term commercial aspirations. And I didn't, that didn't feel right. And at the same time, I has always been searching for another higher level of mean, meaning and purpose to, to feel some sort of fulfillment within myself. So when a friend of mine told me that maybe the Nordic Cuisine Manifesto uh, was not about the Nordics, that there was some sort of universal recipe uh, or, or lesson uh, to be learned or to be uh, understood within it, it gave me goosebumps, and 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 that was also, um, in addition to the first reflection, the reason why we started uh, looking out for a um, a destination or a location that could be a, a meaningful. I mean, you could say a kind of a canvas or, or a test pilot or. Uh, we needed somebody somewhere in the world that could potentially benefit from from this idea. Uh, so we set out to explore if if uh, deliciousness uh, and more specifically the approach we are taking in Denmark and Scandinavia, if that could become an instrument to fight poverty, and and that somehow uh, led us towards uh, La Paz and Bolivia. And so was Bolivia like the the fellas at the table were saying, we think Klaus just threw a dartboard at a map and ended up with Bolivia. Or give us just, just a touch on how Bolivia captured your, your intrigue, your imagination. What was it about the food? And let, let me say this. 
what was clear from the, the film, it was a love story about Bolivia, yet not necessarily about the ingredients. You know, we see some ingredients, we, we touch on some, some dishes, yet it's very much a human story and the connection with family and how food brings people together and some of that. So what was it about Bolivia that potentially first attracted you? Maybe anything that you thought you, you expected to find in Bolivia because of what you saw, quote unquote, on paper, yet when you got there? It was very much a, a human experience. Give us a little bit of the understanding of Bolivia. Yeah, let me just, you know, comment on the three men there in the, in the movie. So I'm, I, they do have a point in the throwing uh, of an, what do you call it? Uh, uh, what do you call that? The throw what? Throw what a dart. A dart. Yeah. So, uh, of course, they underestimated a, li a little bit the process uh, leading to the choice of Bolivia because we actually did a little bit of a of a of, of a of a piece of desk research, and we were mapping uh, a number of countries uh, across Asia, Africa, and um, and Latin America before ending up with Bolivia. So we did a little bit of of, uh, of uh, analysis before getting there. But but it is correct that I had never been in Bolivia. I had no relatives down there. I knew very little about the country. So in that sense, it was a little bit incidental. Um, where where they got the where they got it wrong was that they I mean for me it was not first and foremost uh, some sort of sick man's attempt to prove that he was the mastermind behind everything it was rather uh, an attempt to to um, to uh, explore what good looks like to do something good or great what does that look like and then I just saw an opportunity to to up my game uh, by spending hours and money uh, on this idea. Uh, hopefully for the benefit of other like-minded people in other industries. Uh, I don't think food is the only vehicle for this kind of uh, initiative um, that I do think many countries could, should spend more time on. Um, but the first impression was uh, very negative. I mean, I remember it's clearly the first week we were there and we were deeply depressed um, the first five to six days until in the very end we saw a little bit of light. Um, we knew that um, Bolivia had probably the largest unexplored uh, biological diversity anywhere in the world, uh, but we, we couldn't really get our hands onto it because uh, what we found out later was that much of this biodiversity was totally inaccessible. You need to travel three and a half days, uh, partly on a, on a mule or in a, in a canoe and you know across all kinds of dangerous species and snakes and what have you, and maybe some, even some uh cannibals uh to get to those goddamn uh shoots or fruit from this or that uh, tree that you wanted to so so you, I'm, I'm joking a little bit also but but you didn't see an abundance of of, of incredible ingredients in La Paz when we started when we started there and the other reason why the the human or social uh component ended up uh, being so important is that we underestimated a little bit what the true what the true challenge was, and and um, and, uh, and 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 how important it was to get the human side right in order to be able to achieve uh, anything with the food, and somehow I believe that Michelangelo and Camilla, who were the, the the two young people running the operation on site, they also, and I think that is a very beautiful part that they somehow ended up um emphasizing or prioritizing 
the uh, the whole concept of, of making these people their students grow um, uh, personally and not just teaching them to cook world-class food so that became at least as important as teaching them to cook incredible food so when people came from all over the country the world to to to, to be at gusto and have a meal of course they were kind of blown away by the food but at the same time they had pretty decent meals in europe also or in the us but 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 truly blew people away was the connection with the, the 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 chefs and waiters that we you know gave the opportunity to shine for a little while in that country i appreciate that we'll come back to the the human side the mentorship <laughs> michael i want to come to you as klaus was kind of joking there I was like yeah i felt anxiety as i watch film and being very much a film buff and uh -huh. i'm always thinking about also the filmmaker because I, I i see most things in a film in my head and so i'm like holy shit, you guys are going up that those hills and and i'm thinking that your crew is trying to get to all these remote places and the logistics and then you're hunting crocodiles in the middle of the night like uh talk about that a little bit because there was clearly you used a storytelling method that i really like you slowed us way down you got uh -huh. very introspective quite a few times uh saw that kenzo basically didn't have very many scenes where he wasn't in slow motion you know it was very important for you to slow us down slow motion uh lighting was key you you did a lot with very introspective music there was bubbling creeks and rustling grass very much was trying to get us into those reflective moments and why was that so important it was clear it happened a lot that you needed to go back to that tool again and again because so many yeah. moments it's easy for us to just skip over and, and want to go fast and mm -hmm. see the next sexy plate of food you slowed us down why was that the way you went about that especially when we got out into nature those difficult places to get the good stuff yeah i mean that's a, I, that's actually klaus pointed out a pretty funny quality that i kind of forgot is the difficulty in obtaining a lot of those ingredients it cannot be stressed enough i mean not for us just as filmmakers but one of the beautiful things that gustu did is that they actually set up a lot of supply chains to producers and farmers and hunters for the, the crocodile that weren't available back then. And they were able to not only help these small producers grow, they also were able to introduce the world to more ingredients or um, at least Bolivia when they were originally inaccessible. But yeah, I mean, from a, I guess there's kind of like two parts to that question. The first is the, the stylistic choice of the slow motion. I mean, we started making the film when Jiro came out, but right before Chef's Table came out, and that's become a very popularized tool in the culinary world, I think, when you do food cinema. But I, I mean, we, we decided kind of very early on that was an asset we were going to use because um, the one thing that was really important to me was process. And uh, I think when you... With, with the way food is consumed these days, and it's, it, you kind of, it's in front of you and you eat it and you consume it. And I mean, the opening kind of speaks to this. There's a very long line that goes from the actual ingredient before it ends up on your plate. So just emphasizing how it's a very arduous, not all things are as arduous as getting the crocodile from the middle of the Amazon to a restaurant. But um, e even here in the U.S., I think people forget that there is backbreaking work that's involved in getting these things to your plate. And, and also in the kitchen when they make it. I mean, uh, there's a tremendous amount of effort by a team to build those dishes. And I think it, the, 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 the slow motion thing is very, um, it helps attribute that process that, that it takes to get from farm to table. 
Uh, and then the, the sound and stuff. I mean, I, I'm a narrative filmmaker by heart. Not to say documentarians don't do this, but I've always had a love for sound and sound design. So one of the really fun things making the movie was uh, kind of accentuating the water and the wind and the things, because I think that makes it a much more immersive experience. Um, I mean, the, 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 one of the funnest things as a filmmaker is when we were doing our film festival tour, watching it in the theater in a big screen, um the opening when you're crocodile hunting is is tremendous amount of fun and then when the gunshot goes off you can feel the theater jump uh at the same time so that was that was a lot of fun were you not afraid out there mike uh we were scared no yeah. we were very very scared uh i mean it's funny so our what, what was our, your chance of dying that night i mean was it one percent about half a percent no, I, of, well there was a I risk you would be what were the Vegas odds on you coming? Yeah, I, I mean, we were. It was. I mean, I, I the death, the death. I don't know. I mean, I think the thing is that was scarier. Not just that night. Is that we were like eight hours by a, like a boat from the nearest civilization. Not like you were near a town. You were like a village. So, the scary thing is like I remember at one point one of our crew members. We were a very small crew, four people one of them cut their finger and we're like if that gets infected son of one of us has to cut his finger off or something like that because i mean it is very much very remote and you're kind of in the middle of nowhere but i mean th this is a funny thing i mean klaus knows uh the cinematographer i work with jeff and jeff has gone on to shoot mexican drug cartels and another documentaries he was on the front lines of the ukraine border uh early last year for another documentary and he still says to me the most demanding project was that brief not to say the most dangerous per se but the most um demanding physically was the amazon just because we were a very small crew and uh we had to travel many hours by boat just to get to some of those locations so i mean Maybe. we i'm grateful that you did yeah. i think sometimes i think this uh, the audience that we have is very interested in that because there's so many different overlying overlapping storylines and one of them is how you mm. actually create this film and, and so i really appreciate that because i could sense the challenges that everybody was facing that klaus mm. and camilla and their team was facing to be able to be outsiders and find a way in the challenges that maria and kenzo and everybody was facing to mm -hmm. overcome their circumstances and the challenge that you all overcame to be able to go to kenzo's family home and and even his mother says oh i didn't know you were coming to our home because they're like no outsiders ever trek their way up here to come to our home let alone a film crew so i really appreciate that it was very much an overcoming of challenges throughout the film and so i wanted to highlight that for sure so i, I want to move to 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 gusto so mm -hmm. klaus i want to touch on this fine dining why fine dining as the vehicle to be able to put the Amazonian food, the Bolivian food onto a pedestal? Why was that the vehicle? Because you mentioned that Noma and the challenges that you saw with Noma and the movement and how the movement potentially became commercialized. You had, you had been down that path before and you chose a fine dining restaurant again. So I'm interested in, did you learn and understood how to do it differently? Was that why the school connected to it, kept it tethered and grounded? Give us a little understanding of why fine dining and the Gusto restaurant itself was the vehicle to be able to kind of elevate the Bolivian food story. 
So a, a few years uh, before the, the the opening of, I mean, of the launch of the of the Bolivian project, we had been um, working in prisons in Denmark and um, and and come to understand what a powerful message it is to bring somebody who is uh, deprived from access to resources that other people take for granted. What 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 a what a powerful idea it is to share with them that uh, together in uh, in a, in a not too far away from here we are able to create some of the greatest food in the world uh, so it was a matter of of um, telling them that they have the right if not the obligation to dream big and 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 we wanted to and we wanted to you know do everything we could to to allocate uh, the resources they would need themselves, these Bolivian youngsters, to create with our help um, behind the scenes uh, a great restaurant. So we believe that if we could achieve that and also uh, using only local Bolivian ingredients, we could send a message, and uh, not just to future chefs, but also to, to uh, other people in Bolivia, other young people, you know, there's a 30, percent uh, youth uh, unemployment rate um, so that if it is a lack of hope and you have parents that tell you that uh, don't dream big uh, it's impossible it won't happen here never ever so we wanted to send that message and also we wanted um, we wanted to 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 put Bolivia on the map because we had learned I mean the global map of, of, of gastronomy uh, also because we wanted to attract tourists that could pay for the food and, and further sustain uh, a, a, de a development of the food, food of every industry in the country, eventually leading to farmers getting better prices for their for their farm products. Um, so that was a strategy we 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 um, opted for, and, and and this is why we went onto something as utopian as to create a fine dining uh, temple in the poorest capital of Latin America. So for you then, being able to make it a school, I'm very interested in that. And I want to reflect on the school part because the graduation scene and, and leading to that, clearly it was, it was monumental. This isn't just a kid who graduated from college in what in America we understand that to be. This was coming from the jungle and putting yourself in a position like Kenzo Maria to become a sous chef to travel to Spain and work at Muguerites, to then go on film tour with Michael and uh, you know be in Tribeca and in San Sebastian to be able to be a part of that. I mean, that's that's transformation that most of us will never see in our lifetimes. And as reflecting on 2020 being one of the most transformational years that anybody living today will have experienced, I'm fascinated in that. And you know, Maria says something, paraphrasing that, uh, you know, in the kitchen, right, they, she feels safe there, that, that all of their troubles kind of melt away a little bit is what she was saying, because there, everything outside of the school, of the restaurant, of the kitchen melts away. Poverty, any, any kind of feeling other in the kitchen, you can be brilliant, right? And, and even, you know, Camilla sitting and critiquing the dish and giving that feedback, you could see that there was mm -hmm. that importance of the mentorship, 
again, that guide theme coming up again and again. So touch on that a little bit, the transformation from the human side, from Kenzo and Maria especially, the, the importance, the impact of that. But maybe that is, in the essence, what it's all about. Uh, that I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in the apprenticeship model and the concept of, of, of learning from the master uh, in, in a real life uh, setting rather than studying something on the internet or sitting on the school bench. Um, and, and this particular industry that we are in are also characterized by uh, people from all kinds of uh, ways of life or uh, straits of life, how they can eventually find a space in the kitchen and leave all their, uh, the, the, the troubles they might have been into in their past life behind and just redefine really themselves uh, within the culinary crafts. Um, and then I also, and then also, I believe, I mean, I just, I haven't tried this before, but I just imagine that uh, even though you are living in a very poor country, you still have knives and you have fire and you have ice and you have ingredients. So nothing really prevents you uh, from cooking the best food in the world, apart from a few tricks you have to get up under your sleep. Um, so I saw this as an, as an incredible opportunity for people to grow um, fast in their lives and build also char build character. So we were building their character and we, build, and we were building their professional skills. Um, and now uh, the, the students that we that, that rose uh, to the occasion, now they are building uh, future uh, students, both in our slum schools called Manka, that, that Michael, um, you know, didn't touch with the film. But we, on the side of the film, we also uh, created 12 small schools in, in, in um, the slums of El Alto. And there was also a beautiful relation between the students of Gusto and then the even poorer youngsters in some much less privileged school settings in, in the slums. So this idea of mentoring and, and being a source of light and hope uh, in just maybe one other person's life is is and, and Michael got that so right is what what it is in the essence all about and I hope that every person who goes to the cinema will take that single thing with them back into their own lives that if only you can be the light in one person's life then everything is good I appreciate that Michael I want to come to you one more time uh before we kind of wrap up here and touch on there was another there, there was another kind of tool that you used quite a quite a bit was kind of the, the breakout conversation was clearly there was uh klaus with his daughter there was the the, the three fellows we mentioned there was camilla and angelo kind of these, these little rap sessions where like we got a little bit deeper it was like context setting for us and why was that important and uh and you kind of kept pulling to those as a way to really contextualize what was happening kind of from scene to scene. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess documentaries traditionally have interviews, right? So you'll have people speaking to the camera or to an interview or whether on screen or off screen. And I mean, this goes back to kind of the narrative background part. When we started doing the film, we, we, we kind of did that initially. We had our straight to camera interviews, but what I found was um, there was something unsatisfying and stylistically about that. And, 
after the first week, I, I was very unhappy with kind of the way that the interviews were playing. And I thought, you know, I wanted to make this like a, like as much like a narrative film as possible, at least aesthetically. Um, but also I think there was a very practical reason to it as well, because if I was going to ask Kenzo's father, for example, what were your dreams for your son? Or I was going to ask Klaus, what did you want to be when you grow up? I mean, this, there's a heavy component of family and also relationships in this film. I said, well, isn't it more interesting if they had that conversation with not some stranger asking them all these personal questions, but with a family member or with, uh, with a partner or with a friend or with each other? So um, that was kind of the strategy going in was to have these conversations between people. And at the same time, we suspected that there might be some kind of weird alchemy that happens when these individuals have conversations with each other, because maybe um, Klaus has never told a particular daughter a story to his daughter about his life, or maybe Kenzo has never expressed what he wants to do and why he's doing it to his father or family. So uh, we we took a chance on that, and we were actually very happy with. I mean, clearly, as if you if you see the film, I think uh, it 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 worked out very well in terms of um, capturing some very special moments. Yeah, I appreciate that. And with that, I want I want to wrap with this thoughts. I want to come back to you because kind of what you just mentioned, Michael the the interaction with you and your daughter was was really powerful. And, you know, being able to reflect on your own family history, uh, again, finding Elizabeth and Guy, that truly were the finally you found a guide. And I think that now fundamentally drives you. That was very, very clear from listening to that. Uh, your daughter, very, very astute, very much like got to when you turned the question back on her, what do you think the challenges would be? Those those were exactly the right challenges. And it was very it was very clear that. Uh, very thoughtful, so appreciated watching that. I also recognize, and I wanna finish with this, the question of legacy was a little bit of a challenge for you. I could tell you you, you labored with it a little bit, and I, I understand that because you're very much a, an infinite thinker, that, that these finite goals of Noma, of even Gusto, of, of the accolades, of the quote-unquote achievements are, are hard to, to, to wrap your head around because you have such a goal that lives way, way, way beyond you. So you have not achieved that. And taking a moment to think that, to reflect on your achievements kind of takes away from the, the bigger vision. And so you took it to being a role model, a guide, making sure that your daughter knew that you loved her. Legacy. I wanna ask you the question again, legacy, as you think and reflect upon that, maybe broadly, maybe personally. And then I also, as, as, a, as a chef and somebody who's watched your career, I'm very interested you know, there's a line cook in La Paz, in in San Antonio, Texas, in San Sebastian or in Tokyo that is needing and wanting to feel a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, that just the transaction of just cooking the food loses that luster and we need something bigger, a North Star to pull to, which is clearly something you're driven by. This is a long question. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. I'm on Give me the short version. Yeah, the short version. Legacy for you as you reflect upon that again, legacy for you for uh, the food world as, as that is a familial thing for you. The food world, the legacy you want to leave for the food world. So that is super difficult. I just want to give Michael a compliment before I try to, you know, jump onto your question. Uh, because actually, Michael, you were so right. I mean, the, the, the setting you created or the conversation you 
created with my youngest daughter, actually, I mean, not that I had at all in any way a bad, I mean, I think the picture tells we had a great relation already, but but somehow in between not only her, but also my other daughters, um, it has given this conversation, the question that was asked, the way that was asked, it has give, given a, a, an incredible depth to our relationship and a deep, deep um, kind of sense of love and mutual understanding about the bigger picture and what is important in life and what counts. And so I'm for, I will be forever grateful for that very special moment. You are the reason behind in my personal that, life. That, that means a lot. That's, <laughs> that's great. Um, legacy. I, I'm probably not answering the question, but uh, I think uh, I think being a human, or I mean, being a human is about, or and growing up is about hospitality uh, in the largest uh, sense of the word. I mean, to assume responsibility for other people um, in the communities within which you operate, either be 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 a source of progress and hope and growth uh, for few people or for more people to, to explore how you can be um, that uh, that uh, that that light. I, I will reuse the word light. Um, so I, I don't I, I never think about it before that question was asked, what what is legacy? I mean, I, I don't I never think about it, um, but I do want as long as I uh, live and am fresh. I want to be as much. I, I want to be a friend and um, um, uh, an element of strength in in the life of the people I come across. And I insist on living my life spontaneously. I, I, I didn't call up Michael. I didn't even think about a, a documentary film. But the moment Michael showed up at my doorstep, I said, "How can how can I be how can I be of service?" Uh, so if I if I so maybe that is if I can be a living example of the of the concept of being of service to other people, even though you don't meet know them or live with them or are part of their family. If you can, if I can be an example of the concept of being of service, um, and and meet other people with love, uh, also strangers. Uh, I, I mean that that is uh, I guess that is that is important and and that will that will be enough. That is. That is exactly what we need. Yeah, please, Michael. I was just wanted to return the favor of Klaus's compliment and say, I mean, I have expressed this, expressed this. I think I hope I've expressed this to you before, but um, I mean, like Klaus said, he didn't ask to do the documentary. Like, but the the, the component of it was is I ate at the restaurant, and immediately you could feel the love of the project in the DNA. And if it was just a story about a restaurant, it would have not compelled me. But the fact that this extraordinary thing was happening um, at an, on a very human level. It compelled me in a way that I think few things um, have in my life. I mean, people, I think people like films take so long to make. This film took about five years to make. And it's really hard to find something where you say, I'm going to be willing to dedicate. I didn't know it was going to take five years, but, you know, even the next two years of my life to do this. But because of that human element and of that inspirational quality, um, it really, it would, I wouldn't have been able to do it without the support of someone like Klaus. And he was so open immediately when it came to be. And also in terms of, I, I was very young when I started making the film. And um, 
what Klaus presented as an individual, and, and, and this is to say he is doing what he is saying he wants to do, which is show people that through action, you can be a positive force in the, in the world around you. I think I learned a lot of that from him. And um, I will be forever grateful for having that sense of responsibility uh, as a human being to the world around me um, because of what I saw him do and, and just being around him and his projects and his family. So thank you for that, Klaus. Another, another beautiful human moment. I appreciate both of you storytellers, <laughs> communicators at your core. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And I hope, big takeaway, that you can explore how you can be the light, how you can be a friend, how you can be an element of strength, how you can be of service. I think that is the calling that Klaus has laid down for all of us that Michael has so beautifully captured. And I appreciate you both for this little breakout rap session. I know that I will be forever changed by it because the more humans we interact with, the better served we are. I absolutely believe that. And so thanks to both of you. Thank you, Jensen. All right, everybody, that is it. Appreciate you all. As always, cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.